Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. How are you this morning, Kieran? Okay, suffering from last match on match of the day-itis, but anybody saw Brighton versus Burnley, yes, they they probably know why. Well, you're suffering from last match on match of the day-itis. We're suffering from why can't we have better referees in English football? Itis. Just, ah... We're on the side of referees on this this show, Kieran. Every now and again, you have to acknowledge that some referees do not apply the rules equally to both teams playing in the game at the same time. Oh, I, really, Virgil van Dijk is the worst referee we've had at Palace for a long time. Well, he's he's good at pointing, but if, if only there was somebody else on the pitch who had a whistle who could perhaps have made decisions, what a... Uh, Better game that would have been. That's going to come up with this. <laughs> it's going to come up with it again. And as for you not beating Burnley, Kieran, well, gee, that's, that's you were getting the blame for that in the pub afterwards. <laughs> well, t- twenty-nine shots, but I know. but their, their keeper had an absolute blinder. Fair, fair play to him. He was, he was yeah. magnificent. Yeah, I, I also. I, I think Vincent Company does a splendid job of looking like he's won every game, whatever happens. When the final whistle goes, he just puts that proper smile on for the camera. It's questions day, Kieran. Um, first question is, why can't we have better referees in the Premier League? Um, the first question, Kieran, comes from Ben Robinson. Um, ben Robinson, you notice how I go from my angry voice into my smooth broadcasting Very voice again? Very, Very good, isn't it? I could, there's, there's a job for Classic FM. I could, I'd love, actually, I'd love to do Classic FM. You imagine that? I wonder if Classic FM would find a space for the price of football podcasts, Kieran. That's unlikely, I imagine. And if they did, they'd get Alexander Armstrong to host it, like he appears to be hosting every single thing on radio at the moment. Uh, ben Robinson says, do transfer deal add-ons like sell-on fees expire after a certain number of years? Are they only valid for the initial contract that the player signs when they join a club? Or do they stay in place for the length of time that a player stays there? Good question, Kieran. It is. Um, I, I spoke to one of our uh, legal friends on this, mm. and the answer was, of course, it depends, um, <laughs> as one would expect. In order to protect the selling club, um, they will have contractual obligations, which will normally last at an agreed period of time. That's to stop the buying club 
renegotiating the contract with the player after, say, six months, giving the player a small pay rise and effectively writing out the selling club from all of the add-ons. So um, under normal circumstances, it would be for the, the original period of the contract. Now, if the original period of the contract is for five years, even if the player renegotiates his or her contract during that period of time, the selling club will still have been protected in terms of you know, international caps, winning trophies and so on. So it, it's all there to, to protect all of the individual parties committed to the contract. You'll be intrigued to know, Kieran, I think, um, apropos our conversation about referees at the start of the show, uh, that I have my own secret broadcaster. I didn't oh, I didn't ooh. know I had him until he contacted me after the game yesterday. Is uh, somebody I'd met who found themselves working for a broadcasting company uh, which gave them access to the VAR conversations yesterday. And he said that the VAR official was literally pleading for the ref to go and check that we'd had a penalty. Literally pleading when the ref go, no, it's fine, I don't think so. Obviously, I don't imagine that would be Liverpool that well. And eventually, uh, the VAR official said, "You Howard Webb's in the building. And, the, and that was the cue for him to go and check whether or not it was a penalty. Uh, I, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But um, if the bloke told me in the pub afterwards, so I've got no reason to if, disbelieve if it. If it comes from a bloke in a pub, it's got to be true. Absolutely. He was a very credible bloke in the pub, I have to say. And, you know, he... He, he turned up into the pub quite late, so obviously he had been working. That's clearly the only reason he wouldn't have got to the pub till 10 to 5. Adam Roper has our next question. Um, they're all good questions this week, but this is another interesting one. Adam says, one of the topics I find most interesting on the pod is that of the employment status of footballers, as I suppose I always thought of them just as sportsmen and never really considered them having a normal employer-employee relationship. But this makes me wonder about the employment relationship of a player that's on loan to another club. On financial matters, for example, which club actually pays the player if the cost is split between clubs? Which club receives compensation if the player is injured playing international football? And would the individual bonuses slash incentives still hold if the player, for example, scores 100 goals at the loaning club? I spoke to the secret agent this morning, or one of the secret agents. We we are we are very fortunate that we have quite a few of these these days. Yeah. Should um, we have um, do you want a drum roll before you say uh, it depends this time, Kieran? <laughs> and you're absolutely right. But he, he gave me a very comprehensive answer. Um he said if it's a domestic deal, so if we've ah, got a player, okay. say going from you know Palace to Millwall or you know Brighton to Portsmouth or whatever it's going to be, um, then the uh, the selling club, the parent club, is responsible for paying the wages. Right. Um, but when it comes to bonuses, the buying club is responsible for the bonuses, which which makes sense. Um, so, um, as far as the selling club is concerned, they normally pay the player and then they invoice the buying club for saying, well, if you've got Joe Bloggs for the six months, we've agreed, uh, you know, you're paying 80% of his wages and therefore here's here's a bill for 80% of his wages. On some occasions, however, the buying club will be paying wages that are higher than that of the selling club. So if we take the case of Kylian Mbappe, remember he went initially on loan to PSG. So they paid him the top up, 
And that makes a lot of sense. Um, so it, it, it start, the more you go into it, the, the more complicated it becomes. And then we move to the issue of um, international loans. So if you've got a, a player going from the Premier League to the Bundesliga or from the Liga to uh, you know, Serie A, then it is the, the buying player who is responsible for paying the player. And that makes a lot of sense because you've got different tax systems. If I'm being employed in Germany, then I need to be subject to German tax rules, even though you know, my parent club could be Liverpool or Brighton or Palace or wherever it's going to be. So it, it does open up a, a pretty much can full of worms. Um, but you know, the, the contracts are there once again to, to protect all parties, but also to ensure compliance with, with sort of local tax rules. Um, and, and the more you go into it, the, the more complex it becomes. Mm. <clears throat> Speaking of Joe Bloggs, Kieran, our next question comes from Joe Joe Boys. Um, unusually, though, the Joe in this uh, scenario uh, is spelt with an E, so it's J O E J O E Boys. Now, it's so unusual that I do wonder whether the guy hiccuped as he was um, emailing us the question, or whether in fact Jojo Boys is Jojo Boys. It's a um, both circumstances are interesting, Kieran. I'm always fascinated when I come across a name I've never seen before. Um, but Jojo has a, a simple but, again, interesting question. Jojo says, are footballers' pensions just the same as in most workplaces? And is there any preference amongst clubs for defined benefits over defined contributions? Now, you might have to define what defined benefits and defined contributions are. Kieran, before we get on with the rest of the question. Yes. So a, a defined benefit pension scheme is often referred to as a final salary scheme. And the way that it works is for every year, for example, if, let's say for every year that you've been employed by your, your current employer, you get you know, 1.5% of your final salary or 1%, 1.5% of the average of your last five years' salary, whatever it's going to be. So if I've, so if I've worked for the, for the organisation for 20 years and I'm on 1.5% per year, 20 times 1.5%, I get 30% of my final salary upon retirement. That is good for employers when the stock market is doing well because pension funds are invested in the stock market and you get loads of money, it could be that you're quitting. But if the stock market's not doing well, lots of employers have got caught, caught on the hoof because the returns that they've got from investing the money have been crap. And then the employer has to make up the shortfall. So what we have seen in, in many pension funds over the years is a switch away from that because the employers don't want to take on that risk. And now we have something which is far more common, which is called the defined contribution fund scheme. And a defined contribution scheme is you put 10% of your salary into a pension scheme each month. That's managed for you by a pension specialist. And you keep your fingers crossed that they're not an idiot, i.e. that they've <laughs> invested your money well. Right. So all of the risk is borne by you as the employee. So whilst people say to me, yeah, well, why do yeah, you talk about finance? Yeah, what, how does it impact upon me? Well, these days, probably about you know, nine, certainly over 90% of private sector employees have defined contribution schemes. So if you're getting good returns in terms of dividends, in terms of interest, in terms of increases in share prices, then that's going to affect you when you retire. Um, so 
what we have seen as far as football is concerned is that it used to have um, a defined benefit scheme, but that started to run up a pretty significant deficit. So most of the clubs have now bailed out of this sort of this central scheme in football and they've switched to sort of standard defined contribution schemes, which are quite portable. And if you think about it from the point of view of a professional footballer, you know, they could be playing for a significant number of clubs. So you move from pension scheme to pension scheme as, as you change employer. Mm. <clears throat> Any given social situation that Ali and I find ourselves in, she spends a lot of time with her fingers crossed, hoping that I'm not being an idiot. She gets, she's going to get arthritis of the finger at some stage. And this is the last time I shall crow by this in, Kieran, but yesterday's referee, Saturday's referee, was very much do not fine. Yeah, that's the opposite of define. He was do not fine. Um, I really hope Howard Webb listens to this and just gets hold of my number and sends me an angry email so I can send him one back. Leslie Ackley. Well, we, have, we, have, we, have, we have asked PGMOL to come on the show and they've declined. So. Of course, they, they, they've declined. Rick Parry and PGMOL are, if, we, if you define decline, you pretty much look up the word decline in the dictionary and you'll see a picture of Rick Parry and PGMOL because they are the people who most often turn down our kind offer to come on to our pod and have a... I can't understand why, Kieran. I mean, I, I know you saw Rick, Rick Perry the other night at that, that vastly unfair awards ceremony that I wasn't invited to, and I know you did the... You were invited. I was invited to pay... I was I was invited to pay sixty five quid to come along, Kieran. You were you were invited plus one, which means the Barrett... <clears throat> now, you, you were my plus one. She, she drank more than £65 worth of booze. Well, that's a, if, you're, if you're putting that down as a challenge, Kieran, then I will, I will happily... <laughs> well, actually, I'm not sure I would take the Baroness on in that. that. <laughs> I, I, I was not down as your plus one, Kieran. You, you, you had a plus one, and quite, quite wisely, in any situation where you're offered a plus one, you turned to, to the Baroness first, because I wouldn't like to see the look on the Baroness's face when you went... Well, it was plus one, so I've asked Kev to come along. <laughs> but regardless, I, yeah, I, I could have come along at the, at the, for a mere sixty-five pound. Um, but regardless, you and Rick Parry, you did. I understand you did the Simpsons pointing at the eyes and pointing at each other thing. Um, so, which that's why I understand why Rick Parry won't come and why PGMOL won't come on. I don't know if Howard Webb's listening. Get off, come. On, we'd love to see you on the pod. Give, give you. a had a little polish. Be lovely to see you, um, Leslie Ackley. I can't remember where we started. To, oh yes, guess Leslie Ackley, <clears throat> which is a great name. Leslie, that's a proper sixties film. That that would be that would be a detective sergeant, wouldn't it? In a sixties film, played by Leslie Ackley. Um, Leslie's question, I think, is a really interesting one. Leslie says, "I understand that when Ken Bates owned Chelsea FC, he sold he sold even small areas of the pitch to Chelsea fans." in the hope of preventing the club being forced to move from Stamford Bridge in future, which we know is true, Kieran, because we've interviewed one of the um, uh, heads of the Chelsea Pitch Owners Association. Um, it's probably the wisest thing that Ken Bates did. Um, and we've spoken about it that scheme, um, uh, especially when Burley took over, about whether he knew about it or not is a, is a moot point. But Leslie's question, this is the interesting bit, says, I wonder when the owners of these small sections of the pitch shuffle off this mortal coil 
which is a lovely euphemism. Um, so when they die, whether these assets can be passed on in a will, etc., to family members or friends who also support the club, or do these portions of the pitch then revert to the control of the club? Which it, it suggests a wider question, Kieran, that we didn't ask, or I certainly didn't ask, is is that could could individual members of the Chelsea Pitch Association, regardless of, of whether they leave the bit of the pitch in their will, could they, while they're still alive, offer to sell their bit of the pitch back to the to the club and eventually one you know, the whole pitch could be part of the club and then that might help with redevelopment of the ground. I think that would take quite quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and whilst we're on the subject, uh, the, the debut album by This Mortal Coil is one of my favourites from the 80s, mm. um, featuring both the Cocteau Twins and Felt. That's, that's on the day, when, the day when I had a sort of a, you know, the long, the long coat and the floppy fringe. I was trying to be. I was trying to be as eighties as I could. <laughs> I, I don't think it gets more eighties than the sentence featuring the Cocteau Twins and Felt. Yes, <laughs> that's going to be. I'm going to be saying that all day, every time. Ali says, "You want a cup of tea?" Yes, as long as it's featuring the Cocteau Twins. And <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, I I, I absolutely uh, reiterate your your view that this was a. a fantastic piece of work by Ken Bates, which, yeah. is, which is not a thing I'd ever say uh, yeah. under normal circumstances. Um, and for those people not familiar, what has happened, as as Leslie has, has indicated, is that the pitch has been effectively cut into to one yard or one metre squares, and it's been sold off to individuals, and you can't own more than 10. So, so yeah, there's very much a, a protection um, of the club, because it was one of the things that he feared in respect of new owners coming in. Um, it, it will form part of the estate um, in respect of anybody who, who sadly passes away, and therefore it will be down to the uh, the recipients of the estate to, to determine the appropriate action. But even if it was sold back to the club, the club wouldn't be able to have more than ten votes. Um, so, you know, I, I think there would still be some form of protection, and I would imagine that, that many Chelsea fans who have have a huge affection for Stamford Bridge and want what's best. They wouldn't feel comfortable about um, you know, transferring decision making wholly in respect of where the club play to um, an American investment fund and Todd Bowley, of whom we have many stories, none of which we can repeat on the show. Mm. <laughs> we uh, well, if you come and see us live. Uh, Kieran could be cajoled into doing so. How significant, Kieran, is the Chelsea Pitch Owners Association? If if there was um, a significant attempt by a developer to to buy Stamford Bridge we, uh, with a sum that involved billions of pounds, would would the Chelsea Pitch Owners Association really be able to prevent that from happening? Yes, they they own the name Chelsea Football Club, so uh, oh, okay. yeah, they, they so they have huge influence um, in terms of, of protecting the future of the club. So if somebody, you know, there was talk about moving to Battersea Power Station, there was yeah. talk about you know taking over Earls cool. Court, yeah. um, Chelsea under uh, Clear Lake Capital have now bought, as we said, you know, a piece of land or, you know, next to the ground. Is that going to be used to development, possibly? Or, you know, bigger picture, could it be sold as an even bigger, you know, piece of uh, you know, real estate in the swankiest part of London um, and, and therefore 
you know, be worth an absolute fortune in its own right. But in order to do that, you'd have to get the CPO approval. So um, it's it's a sort of it's a bit like the Bank of England in the sense that they are a protector of last resort. They don't get involved in the day to day decision making. They don't get involved in funding. But in, in terms of yeah, which surely is the most iconic part of Chelsea, the, you know, it's its stadium. They are its 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 protectors, its guardians. I I would love to see Chelsea play at Battersea Power Station. Anything would be preferable than what they've done to it now. Do you know how long it was a power station for, Kieran? I don't. It's nineteen years. That's all. It's only. It was it's, really. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the most iconic buildings in in London, and it was only it was only built in nineteen fifty one, and I think it was decommissioned in nineteen seventy, and then just wow. allowed. A lot of dash, a lot of dash hounds as well. Dash hounds. Cause, yeah, because yeah, I, I went there. The Baroness wanted to go there to, to look at the shops. And as you can imagine, of course. Yeah, it's, 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 and, and people wonder why we hate international weekends. Yeah. Because this yeah, is a exactly. classic. Yeah. A classic. <laughs> uh, as, as soon as I, I, work, I work out the international weekends and I go, oh, Jesus Christ, what am I going? I know, I know what's going to happen. So, so we went up there because we hadn't been there before. Uh, and it was incredibly antiseptic. Yeah, it, it was it just. It, I, I, I hate shopping. I, I hate crowds, unless it's at a football match, because you are part of a living organism when you're part of a crowd at a football match. But I, I don't like groups of people, um, and, and it was horrendous. But yet so many of them were wandering around carrying dash hounds. Uh, and it was all sort of swanky bankers and uh, yeah, yeah, horrible, horrible. Well, Make it that's, football ground. Yeah, uh, well, that's... See, uh, Unlike the rest of us, you know, that shows how upper class they are, Kieran, because it would be cockapoos if they were middle class. Or, or that seems to be the indicator of being middle class these days, having a cockapoo called Daisy. Uh, but they've all, all got dash hounds, and the dash hounds are too posh to even walk, being carried around. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Brian Markovitz has our next question. We're being easily distracted today, Kieran, are we, are we not? Um, uh, <laughs> distracted away from that BAFTA nomination yet again. Brian Markovitz says, Earlier this year, the US Soccer Federation released its financial statements and tax forms, including salaries for all Federation officials and coaches. Is this something that's done in other countries, or is this information publicly available elsewhere? And how do some of the coaching salaries compared to other countries. I, I found this question very interesting, Kieran, um, especially why the US Soccer Federation saw the need to publish this information in the first place. Yeah, the, the US is, is a complex, chaotic country in so many ways. Um, yeah, we've just seen, uh, yeah, we're recording this on Sunday morning, but I think yesterday afternoon came news through of a of a baseball player signing a $300 million contract. Yeah, we yeah. talk about money in football. Um, but yeah, yeah, compared to some of the US sports, it, it, it pales into insignificance. Um, and American soccer clubs and NFL clubs and basketball clubs, they are um, private companies and private companies don't have the same obligations as private companies have here in the UK in terms of submitting data to um, companies' house. Because otherwise, yeah, no, no disrespect to, to us, um, producer guy would be running the price of NFL because you know to a far bigger audience and and we would be we would be out on our ear um, because they you know, there'd be a huge audience for it but there's simply not enough financial data to, to run that that particular show um, so they 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 seem they've got a far more blasé attitude towards money and we're always very protective about how much we earn you know I think it's part of you know the yeah, sort of the, the the British national you know, sort of the reserve. We don't want to be seen to be posting about things in America. This is how much I earn. It's part of the American dream. Um, so in the case of the U.S. national men's team, the coach earns $1.64 million, which is probably about yeah, probably about £1.4 million. Pounds, yeah. um, but the U.S. women's national team, which has been far more successful, the coach earns $446,000. So the, the men's coach is on about three and a half times the amount of the women's coach. If we take a look at England, the, the, the Football Association does not publish data. So therefore, of course, we have to go to journalists gossip, which is great if you're in one of those WhatsApp groups. Um, and the word on the street is that Gareth Southgate is probably on around about £5 million a year plus bonus. Um, where does that place him? You know, from international managers, it's certainly at the top end. As far as club managers are concerned, yeah, that's sort of probably mid mid tier. As far as the Premier League is concerned, um, Serena Vikman is on estimated four hundred thousand pounds. So you know, it's it's less than a tenth 
of that of Gareth Southgate. There's an article in The Guardian, would be The Guardian, of course, where else? Uh, saying, well, surely they should be played the same. And you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a debate to be had, which, which, which isn't for here. Yeah, I, we, we'll leave that. We'll leave that to, to somebody with far more common sense than us to discuss that. You know, something like Joey Barton. He, he knows. <laughs> he, he can put his finger on the pulse. Um, in terms of... I, I was going yeah. to ask you, Kieran, who, who could have more common sense than us? But then, of course, the, the, you suggested the other... Yeah, oddly enough, his name came up in the uh, Porson's Arms before the game yesterday. Uh, yes. Um, uh, and the conversation started by two of the female members of our group would you believe it Kieran yeah, you... it's amazing what people will do when they've got a new podcast to promote to try to get an audience isn't it it's we didn't do that Kieran we just <laughs> we, half, we sort of... <laughs> apologetically banged on about amortization <laughs> for a couple of weeks yes. it's, the only way we, it's the only way we plug this podcast um I, I I can understand why Kieran the FA you know I, I think somebody's earnings are a very personal matter, and of course they are. But as as we learned when we were researching the book, the FA are incredibly cagey about revealing any financial information, um, from salaries down to how much players are offered to to play for England. You know, which is, it, it, they always say it doesn't matter because the players give the money away. But I understand why they're they're so reluctant to reveal details. But it it does stand in stark contrast to the Americans who are li- just literally quite happy to say no this is what everyone earns and this is what the amount of tax they're paying on that money yeah it, it's very much a cultural difference um at the awards ceremony on monday oh, yeah. um i did bump <laughs> into somebody from the fa and i was trying to do a little bit of you know gentle arm twisting to get them to come on to to talk about you know sort of the role of the fa from yeah, from a financial point, yeah, we're not going to talk about the England team. We're not going to talk. Yeah, we're not going to talk about individual salaries because yeah, ultimately, yes, as you rightly say, it's, it's a private concern. And a bit of progress was made, but I got the impression that it wasn't wasn't the same as a an, a complete commitment from them. Um, so I, I suspect they'll say, yeah, anything that happens after three or four glasses of Pinot Grigio um, is is uh, by definition not contractually of obligation. You should have got the Baroness to do the discussing, Kieran. The Baroness could persuade anyone to appear on anyone. Well, yes, yeah, she did. She did actually because she got somebody. She was sitting next to somebody from Network Rail, um, and and she had a sort of an hour long conversation um, with him. And actually, this is somebody who we perhaps we should get on the show because he was talking about match day travel oh, yeah. and or and some of the stuff that goes on. Was pretty fascinating, so I'll I'll try and get hold of him. Um, he's he's got the Baroness's number; she's not got his. So it's, it's a bit like, it's a bit like Jersey, that Leeds fan. Just as a matter of interest, Kieran, do you think was this person from Network Well nominated for an award at this dinner? Do you think, or, or just just there on a jolly on expenses? Because either way, I'm even more annoyed now that some from Network Well was invited. And I wasn't, and I was nominated. Something's, something's gone wrong, and it's, it's terribly wrong. The, the, what a world we live in, Kieran. It's shocking, isn't it? Um, Paul Salvin has a, a very interesting question, and it's the sort of question I like because I'm fairly certain this would have come out of a pub conversation, and they're nearly always the best questions. And Paul says, I often hear on your pod about player transfers being paid in instalments, and I had a thought, dot, dot, dot. That's... That's always a, it always gets the juices flowing when you see that. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. 
And Paul says, we all know transfer fees are becoming ridiculously high as a result of being able to buy now and pay later. But if clubs were forced to pay for players in full when they bought them, I think transfer fees would likely come down as clubs never want to just buy one player every summer and it would stop the issue of potential non-payment. It would also stop clubs getting promoted and then buying 20-plus players, I suppose, as Forrest would be an example. Um, and it would give the lads who got them promoted a chance to perform. Can you see any pitfalls to this question? Uh, I, I I actually think that's a really good concept. If all transfers had to be paid in cash, I think Paul's absolutely right. Transfer fees would plummet, wouldn't they? Um, yeah, this, this is something which I've suggested to best described as the powers um and it was it was an interesting response um they said they think it would result in a softening of some transfer fees but i think the concern would be is that some of the existing gaps in football could be widened if you are funded by a sovereign wealth fund if you are funded by a gazillionaire, uh, okay. then they can afford to pay everything. And sort of a, a mid-tier club who who's just been promoted or has been, you know, again, we look at Palace and Brighton, you know, we, we got into the Premier League, we both signed a few players, they were, some of them were signed for CAC, but, but mainly on instalments. That step up is, you know, you, you budget, well, we, we hope we're going to get be in the Premier League for a couple of seasons, and, and, and you budget accordingly. Um, and I think the danger is that it could actually a amplify the gaps between those clubs which are funded by want of a better phrase by sugar daddies, um, and those which are sort of you know more sort of collectively funded, and also could increase the extent of the yo-yo within the Premier League and Championship in terms of recycling because. You've got a club like Sheffield United or Forest. Yeah, Forest were promoted last season. Yes, they signed twenty players, but part of the reason for their ability to do that was that they were able to take advantage of um, the sort of the credit facilities available. And if you introduce that in UK football, and you don't have that within European football, it would put the Premier League and EFL clubs at a disadvantage yeah, yeah, yeah. to to other clubs. So, you know, I, I thought it was a valid point, and I, I've certainly discussed it with 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 more senior people. Um, so, you know, I absolutely understand where Paul is coming from. Um, would it re- would it result in an overall reduction of transfer fees? I think the, the answer is probably yes. But the unforeseen consequences could actually be negative as well. Mm. I do like Paul's romantic notion as well about the lads who get a team promoted or the girls who get a team promoted getting a chance to perform in the in the Premier League or the WSL, as I've always argued that the the very first game a club plays in the Premier League, the team should be the same that played in the last game of the Championship or played in the playoff final. Just just even so, a player can get one chance to play in the Premier League, and then you can bring in all the the, the newcomers. Um, it's not going to happen, of course, because it means your team is likely to lose three points. But I do think the I always think it's really unfair when a player gets a team promoted or helps get a team promoted and then gets a transfer back to the championship. Nick Brace has our next question. And Nick Brace says, as someone who comes from the small town of Gosport, I like to keep up with the fortunes of the local club, Gosport Borough FC. I've recently noticed that they have their highlights on YouTube using VEO cameras 
to record the matches. Could this technology help smaller clubs get a foothold into areas such as YouTube? And can this technology improve enough to help smaller clubs be able to offer their own streaming packages in the future at an affordable cost for them? Now, Kieran, uh, you know this. The uh, wide audience don't know my my knowledge of technology equals my knowledge of uh, amortization so i'm not entirely sure what a veo camera is but it sounds impressive yeah it, it's it's effectively it can be controlled remotely so Ooh. you can have somebody in a central box and they can follow the action um well nick i think theoretically this could be beneficial but you then have to say you know good luck to to gosport borough fc you know we're, we're a huge fan of local football how many views are you going to get on the back of that? So, so I, I actually went onto YouTube and I, look, I took a look at one of Gosport's recent matches. They had 700 views of the YouTube video. So it's it's not going to generate much money. We we, we now have a, a YouTube channel ourselves on, on the price of football, and we probably get four to 500 views of some of the videos that producer guys put up, and I've done some charts and so on, which we um, and, and it's not generating an awful lot of traffic but it's something we are we're going to continue to to do so you know some of you know our chats you know we with the producer guy cut into segments just just to sort of publicize the show and we've done a few few other financial bits and pieces as well but it's it's not generated a lot of traction and unless you're getting hundreds of thousands of views you're really not getting a, a significant financial return because youtube's a bit like spotify in the sense that it keeps practically all the money for itself and you're effectively content providers who are doing it for, uh, you know, for, for stuff and giggles um, rather than uh, as a business. Hmm. Uh, good euphemism there at the end, Kieran. I, um, we've got a YouTube channel, have we? I, I really should pay more attention in meetings, shouldn't I? Um, you know what we could do to generate traffic is, is <laughs> record some of the things we say before and after the pod. That would that would get yeah yeah. But I think I think the, the the libel claims might outweigh any financial benefits. Well, somebody, you, I'm sure you can do a spreadsheet that that indicates the potential cost of lawsuits against the potential income of, of what we actually talk about. Um, I, I nearly named a football club and a person in here, but I realised that would be a, that would be a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but anybody who's been to any of our live shows recently will know exactly which person and which club I'm talking about. Our penultimate question, Kira, comes from Fernando Jorge, um, and I'm assuming that because the first name is Fernando, Jorge is how you pronounce the second name. And I apologise, Fernando, if that's an assumption. Um, Uh, Please let me know if I was incorrect. Um, Fernando says, as a long-suffering Spurs season ticket holder, um, and and on behalf of thousands of our listeners, Fernando, I'm going to take exception to that phrase, long-suffering Spurs season ticket holder. You haven't had a good couple of weeks, but I I think there are many, many fans of many clubs who would happily swap their situation for yours. As a long-suffering Spurs season ticket, I, I love the expression, I'm working with a, one of the producers of I Got News For You is a Spurs fan, and he just, he's, you could tell he's a Spurs fan just by looking. He might as well have the word Spursy tattooed on his forehead. He just, <laughs> <laughs> he's reached a situation where he doesn't celebrate. Yeah, most of us don't celebrate in case VAR knocks it off. He doesn't celebrate when Tottenham score because he knows 
inevitably that in the last 10 minutes of the game, the opposition will score two more. Um, <laughs> but Fernando says, as a long-suffering Spurs season ticket holder wh- whose club is financially run properly, in inverted commas, Daniel Leave- Leave- Levy even recently said in the Spurs documentary on the Spurs website that all the money which is brought into the club from their non-footballing events, uh, for example, Beyonce, Lady Gaga concerts, NFL, rugby matches, and now Formula One go-karting, will be reinvested into the Spurs team on players that are affordable. Therefore, based on current estimates, and hopefully Kieran will know what they are, will this generate enough money for Spurs to be able to challenge the big spenders, such as Chelsea and Man United, to buy elite players, and therefore make our team more competitive in the leagues and cups? Which I think is basically another way of saying how much do Spurs make from the extracurricular activities, and will it be enough to buy a new defender? Well, the answer is, Fernando, um, probably. Um, And the reason why I say that, if if we go back to 2016, um, in 2015-16, which was one of the final years uh, that that Spurs were playing at the the old White Hart Lane as opposed to the new White Hart Lane, um, they were making £140 million less than Arsenal and £120 million less than Chelsea. If we fast forward to 2022, that £140 million deficit behind Arsenal has now been reversed and they're now making £70 million a year more. So that has made them more competitive. Um, The £120 million deficit behind Chelsea has been reduced to 37. So there's no doubt that the strategy has been very successful in terms of bringing more money in. and benchmarking Spurs against other London clubs, I think yeah, we could be in a situation, um, especially in a year, um, if if Spurs are competing in Europe and Chelsea aren't, then, then, then Spurs could become the biggest earners in London. So, so that's a positive. You've also got to benchmark against the two Manchester clubs in Liverpool. And those three clubs have all done very well Um, in recent years, because I think in the case of Liverpool and Manchester United, in in my view, those are the two biggest brands um, as far as the Premier League is concerned, and their ability to extract money on an international and global market perspective is far higher than that of Spurs. Um, And this isn't isn't a snide comment, they've won trophies, you know, and and you've got this sort of, this chicken and egg position, you can, you can be big in terms of attracting sponsors if you've won trophies, but in order to win trophies, you need the money from the, the sponsors and the other parties to, to make you more competitive. So, so there is a sort of a natural barrier to that. Um, but without the move to the new stadium and, and the strategy of, of Daniel Levy, I think Spurs would have been significantly behind those clubs. Manchester City, again, they've won lots of trophies. They've got lots of bonuses. They're expanding their stadium again. Um, it, it's going to be tough uh, for Spurs to catch up with them because they've got a different business model in terms of their financial backers and so on. Um, so my view is that without the move to the stadium, I think Spurs would have been less successful than they are. Yes, okay, yeah, we have it. It's all good to have a bit of a snigger because you know to, to go in front in five consecutive matches and get one point out of fifteen on the back of that. Um, is isn't great um, from anybody's perspective, but 
they are as competitive as they are on the back of Daniel Levy's strategy. Is that enough to make them trophy winners? Well, we, it, it's, it helps. You know, you've only got to look at Villa you know, and, the, and the way that they're playing. In, in a, and I say they're in a broadly similar position. Yeah, and they certainly generate a lot less money than Spurs themselves. So it can be done. You get the right coach. If you avoid injuries, you know, Villa haven't had you know, the same injuries that Spurs have had in recent weeks and so on. I, I, I think Villa are a good outside bet to win the title, Kieran. And if they, they can avoid injuries the way they did, I think when they won it uh, back in the day last, I think they only used 13 players, didn't they? Not the whole That's right. that yeah, classic yeah, team yeah. With, with Gary Shaw on Tony it. Tony Morley and Tony, Gary Shaw, yeah, Peter yeah, with yeah. Dennis Mortimer. Yeah, you, you can, the thing is, you can, name that, you can name that squad as well. Yeah, or on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, also, I mean, uh, uh, Gary Shaw is um, the great favourite because you've met Gaz, one of my closest mates, and the reason he's called Gaz—that's his nickname—is uh, is because he looks nothing like Gary Shaw. That's that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how nicknames develop over the time. It's just, somebody pointed out many years ago how different he looked to Gary Shaw. And he became Gary Shaw, and then Gaz, and he he's still answers to it now. Um, his real name is Andrew, which is uh, uh, although his workmates call him Stan, which is all very confusing. Um, uh, which is lovely because our next question, our last question indeed, comes from Andrew, uh, Andrew Woodman. Although uh, anyone with the name Andrew Woodman, it's very difficult not to say Andy Woodman, who's one of my favourite goalkeepers, mainly because he looks like a goalkeeper should look. It looks like the way every goalkeeper looked in 80s Sunday league teams, just slightly <laughs> overweight and in goal because he wasn't quite good enough to be out on the pitch. Um, uh, also, Gareth Southgate's best mate, I believe, Andy Woodman. But anyway, Palace legend, uh, if he'd played more than three games for us. Ho, 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 gentlemen. Get ready to jingle and deck your balls this holiday with the help from our friends over at Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming have just launched their Performance Package 5.0 Ultra. Let your ornaments shine and enjoy 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code PRICE OF FOOTBALL, all in big letters. The Performance Package 5.0 Ultra is the one-stop shop for holiday gifting perfection. It includes a trimmer as precise as Santa coming down the chimney. The Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra brings two next-gen blade heads, which are perfect for sculpting your holiday do. You can also say goodbye to those holiday party crashes. Nose and ear hairs, the Weed Whacker 2.0, ear and nose hair trimmer is the king of trimming those hairs trying to sneak into your festivities uninvited so if you want the smoothest sprouts in town this christmas and the shiniest baubles get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code price of football at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code price of football give the gift of manscaped this holiday season Andrew Woodman has a really interesting question, Kieran, to end with. 
Uh, he says, with the elite player performance plan, allowing players from the EFL to be poached for pennies by clubs in the Premier League, what are the arrangements for clubs who have been relegated from the Premier League? Could, for instance, Liverpool go and raid Everton's academy should they be relegated? Or is there a period of grace? Now, I, I think it's worth, Kieran, if you can, because the, the EPPP is an acronym that, that gets thrown around a lot without people really fully understanding what it actually what it actually is. So perhaps for some of our newer listeners, you could give a brief summary of the elite player performance plan and why people like Andrew think it allows EFL players to be poached for pennies. Right. The, the elite player performance plan was introduced in order to um, improve the number of local qualified players that made it through to the top level of football. Yeah, that was the, that, that was the argument that was put forward. And what it did is that it introduced a, a four-tier system into the coaching of academy players and, and the development and the education of academy players. Um, but it also scrapped what was known as the 90-minute rule. And the 90-minute rule meant that a club could only recruit players who were in a 90-minute radius of the training facilities of their club. So therefore, Liverpool and Manchester United couldn't go down to London, Chelsea couldn't go and pick up players from Exeter, and so on. Um, and what the Premier League did, because it was very much developed by the Premier League, um, the Premier League said to the EFL, uh, we think this is a really good idea, and if you don't agree to it, we will take away your funding that we give you in the form of solidarity payments. So solidarity payments have been introduced. Um, EFL clubs get a, a proportion of the Premier League TV deal, and it's actually worth more than the EFL's only own TV deal. So yeah, the, I think under the uh, under the solidarity payments, a club will get around about four and a half to five million pounds a season in the Championship, four to five hundred thousand in League Two, and they introduce that, and then they say, "Do you say, oh, it's uh, we, we're doing this out of the generosity of our hearts." And if you, by the way, we, we might take it away if you don't don't vote in respect of EPPP. So, if EP, which seems a bit strange because if EPPP is as good as people say, you would have thought that Championship and, and other EFL clubs would vote for it. But what it also means is that a a club who has got a Category One academy can go to any academy player anywhere in the country, and for a fixed fee, they can take that player from you know, the age of 9, 10, whatever it's going to be, um, and they can transfer them that to a catch. So you, you could have a, you know, a promising 10-year-old, and for £3,000, they now become part of Chelsea or Manchester City or Liverpool, wherever it's going to be. And, and this has resulted in a lot of resentment from the smaller clubs. Um, we've seen some academies fold. We've seen some academies being replaced by B-teams. Um, and... That the fees are fixed in terms of how many years have you been at the academy, and then should that player, um, when or if they turn professional, and um, should that player play in the first team, then you get a fixed amount of compensation for every ten matches. The most amount that you can play. So if if Palace have got a promising player who at the age of you know, 10 or 11 or even 14 or 15 goes to a Premier League club, uh, another Premier League club, they, they get you know, a few hundred, you know, a few thousand. It'd be sort of tens of thousands compensation at that age. And if that player goes on to play 100 games 
in the Premier League. And let's face it, you have to be pretty decent to do that. Crystal Palace would get £1.3 million in compensation for that player's development. So, yeah, some people say that that's, that's harsh. Um, so it, it's not actually linked to the division you're in. So, you know, should the worst happen to Everton, Everton won't get relegated, in my view, uh, yeah, regardless of, of the penalty, we've, we've had this discussion. Um, if, provided they maintain their Category 1 academy, they, they, the, the, it's up to the player to choose. You know, the, 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 the predators can't bully the player into joining, although, as we both know, um, quite a few of them are incentivised or their parents are incentivised. And that's, that's as often by agents and, and other uh, unscrupulous individuals as, as for the player themselves. Um, as far as why is it so closely linked to the Premier League, it's because the running costs can be quite high. Um, the, the running costs are a minimum of £2.5 million to run a Category 1 academy. Now, I happen to know a um, uh, an academy manager of a, of a non-Premier League club who's got a Category 1 academy, and they say their stated budget is £6 million a year, which is pretty generous. Um, but, they, but they only actually get two because academy costs are exempt from FFP. And he says, the bloody accountants, they're, uh, they're, they're, sh they're shifting stuff around. Um, so so that's, that's where we are. So, that, so there isn't a sort of a period of grace or, or a, a raiding opportunity. Um, there, there is still a lot, of, a lot of bad feeling from smaller clubs towards the clubs who are category one, who are effectively factory farming. These fees um, haven't been index linked since EPP started, as far as I'm aware. And also, has it achieved its objective? Well, we've still got a 99.8% you know, failure rate, as far as academies are concerned, in, in developing players that come through to first teams. And I was, uh, I was listening to a talk by somebody who sort of has been involved in the academy in youth football, and he says... We still, it is still a stain on the game in the sense that if you take a look at the um, educational attainment of kids who are coming into academies, on you know, overall, they join at the age of nine and ten and they've got above average educational achievements to date. And when they leave, overall, they've got below the national average. So what is happening during the period that they are academy players, it's a very competitive industry. You know, there's no, because you know, if there's 25 of you in the academy, you know, the chances are that one of you has got a 50-50 chance of making it. The other 24, probably not. And also, you know, we, it's a terrible thing to say, we know that clubs deliberately keep these, you know, a large number of these kids on who they know are not going to make the grade Simply because you need your best kid, you need you need dummies to run round, and, and you need you know, people to tackle and people to be in the drills with with your prospective star. So you know the clubs cynically are, are keeping kids there who've got no chance of developing. Um, their educational future is being compromised, and therefore, in, in my view, it's it's an area which which needs proper addressing. 
but it will never happen. And, you know, from the kids' point of view, they all want to play football. They want to play first-team football. They make sacrifices in terms of their education. They make sacrifices in terms of their social groups because they don't go out with their mates. You know, they're, they're not developing as individuals. And then they get kicked out at the age of 15 and 16, and society on a broader level has to pick up the pieces. Mm. Was that impression of your secret academy person uh, an indicator as to where it, the academy is? Because if so, I'm going to say somewhere in the north. I can't be more <laughs> precise than that, Kim, because the accent wasn't more precise than that. Um, Steve Parrish, the owner of my club, Crystal Palace, or the one of the owners of my club, Crystal Palace, who runs a club, was very honest about the reason we spent so much money to become a Category 1 academy. We've got a remarkable academy down there in Beckham. It's beautiful facilities, but the reason we did it was so we could become one of the predators rather than one of the clubs that were having players taken away, that we can now scour the country for young people to come to us and not get a chance to play first-team football for under Roy Hudson. So, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And what you said, though, Kieran, Tony Pulis, who I think would be happy to be described as old school, um, somebody commissioned Tony Pulis to do a report on the academy system. And, and he, as you say, he was very scathing about, in particular, and I know this means a lot to you, Kieran, because you are an educator, a very good educator as well. Um, but Tony Pulis was the one to point out the that that shocking statistic that kids come out of the academy system less intelligent than they went in somehow, um, and and also he he made some recommendations for changes to EPPP regionalisation etc. Which are all so sensible, there's no chance of them being implemented. But the the academy system is something that needs looking into, Kieran, because as you always point out. These are young human beings we're talking about here. And it's you know, it's very easy for us to go, oh, well, 99.8% of them don't make it. But that's, that's a lot of disappointment and despair and unhappiness that for the most part that doesn't still, still doesn't get properly dealt with. You know, they're just basically sent back to the streets where they, they came from and told to get on with it. Um, uh, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. We appreciate every single one of you. If you'd like to join those people and make a small monthly contribution, you will also get access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. We've got a Christmas one coming up. You can find out all about that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Kieran and I will be in Hastings on Wednesday in uh, just two days' time for an event for East Sussex Libraries. We'll be talking about our new book and we'll be talking to you and you can probably ask Kieran uh, behind your hand which football club and manager uh, person I was talking about earlier. Um, I'm afraid the tickets are sold out, but there is a waiting list, so you might be able to get one. If you want to put yourself on the waiting list, then click in the, the link in the show notes to register for that list. And if you'd like to buy our books or one of our other books or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt, you can find details on our website, priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular news pod. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kira Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, well thank you, everybody, for, for the support for the show and for the, uh, the the interaction and engagement that we get on so many levels from you. Um, r- rather than the traditional farewell, I just want to give a shout-out to, to a friend of mine. Um, I, I'm not going to name him. We, we will refer to him by the name Wigwam. 
because this is actually quite a, a quite a sensitive subject. Oh, okay. um, he's he's a he's a really good guy, and, right. and you know some people you 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 don't know that well, but yeah. the more you hear about them, the more impressed. Well, a, a few years ago, he he and his partner they decided that they were going to adopt two children who had oh, been. Well. From 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 difficult circumstances, and anybody that's prepared to do that, I, I yeah, my hat is is firmly doffed to them. And and then he heard recently that the um, that the brother of the two children, the, the, a very young brother of the two children, has been rejected for adoption and fostering by the people who are going to look after him. And this child is 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 a years old. And he's already got his. Uh, he's already got his hands full in what he's having to do to try to improve these children's lives, and he's decided this week that he's going to make up that family. He's going to take on this third wow. child, and I've I've just got nothing but admiration. You know, there, there are life's pretty depressing at present in so many levels. You think about it from political, economic, environmental, social, and so many levels, and it's just. Great to know that there are really good people out there doing really good things. So, so you know who you are, Wigwam. Um, all I can say is that you're an absolute hero, and we need more people like you in this in this world. I, I'm not going to speculate, Kieran, as to how Wigwam got his nickname. Uh, possibly because he's quite intense. Who knows? Um, <laughs> hey! Thank you. But um, I I think. It's we need to reassure ourselves here in, in dark moments that there are more wigwams in the world than there are Farages, basically. Um, there are more wigwams and Bravamans. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a fantastic story, Kieran, especially at this time of year. And if anybody out there can find a way of helping wigwam, maybe donating some stuff, some baby, who knows, uh, we'll happily send that in wigwams and his partner's direction. Foster parents, I think, Kieran, are, are up there for me with with yes. teach with teachers and nurses, um, I, it's always very heartwarming when you hear foster children talk so lovingly of because it's a full time. There is there is there are cynics, Kieran, who say, "Oh yeah, they get money for it," but it's a full. It's more than a, if if you can have something that's more than a full time occupation. Being a foster parent is is one of them, and taking a taking a troubled stranger because most of them are troubled. You know, taking a troubled young person into your house. And giving them warmth and comfort and stability is a fantastic thing to do. Uh, hats off to all of them, and especially wigwams. And on that note, um, we'll say goodbye. We'll see some of you in Hastings, and we'll see the rest of you next Thursday. Bye, everyone. Bye. I'm for the